everyone, and welcome to the fifth and final stop on our Voices of a Healthy Ocean Road Trip. I am your co-host, Jenna Valente. And I am your co-host, Sarah Winter Whelan. And what a trip it has been, and what an honor it has been to spend time with everyone we've visited along the way between Boston and Georgia. And also, I could not think of a better person to round out our trip with than our guest today, Hermina Glass-Hill. Hermina is someone that we deeply admire and we have been wanting to meet in person for quite some time now. She is a writer, historian, preservationist, and sustainability advocate who has been a voice for environmental justice and human rights for more than 20 years. She is the founder and executive director of the Susie King Taylor Institute and Ecology Center, as well as a cherished member of the Healthy Ocean Coalition community. Hermina, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Sarah and Jenna. Thank you for having me. So will you introduce yourself to the listeners and share a little bit about your background? So I am Hermina Glass-Hill, and my background is as a public historian and preservationist. I have a master's degree in heritage preservation. And um, how this all came about, marrying preservation with the ocean, is because I was closely researching Gullah Geechee history and culture for the last 20 plus years until I decided to move here. And I transitioned from preservation to conservation to nature-based preservation, if you will, uh, because it just felt so natural. And so that's what I do here. Mm. Um, In addition to uh, working with uh, Oceana on the campaigns to restore and heal the ocean and and feed communities. And tell us a little bit about where we are right now. Where are we sitting and why did you choose for us to gather here in this space today? Well, today we are at the Susie King Taylor exhibit in Hinesville, Georgia. This is a hop, skip and a jump away from Midway, uh, which was formerly the Isle of Wight where Susie King Taylor was born. Mm. Um, At this location at the Historical Society, The society has been in existence since 1967, 55 years ago, Mm. in the month of June, when I was born. (laughs) And when they approached me about uh, the exhibit being in the Historical Society space, um, their premise was that in 55 years, they never had an exhibit. This was formerly a mobile exhibit. Mm -hmm. I would travel from place to place with certain artifacts and um, and then they saw it at one of the conferences, the Mamiwata Rising Conference, and asked if I'd like to, um, you know, bring this uh, exhibit here. So we are in the space with artifacts that speak to the totality of Susie King Taylor's um, life and experiences as a um, a human who escaped slavery, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, freed herself with her feet, who was rescued um, on the shores of the Atlantic Ocean by the U.S. Navy, mm. and uh, became uh, a, a person who taught other runaways like herself, how to read and write, their letters, their numbers. And so she was Gullah Geechee, meaning she was a person of West African descent, maybe only a few generations um, on this side of the Atlantic Mm -hmm. Ocean. Uh, The Gullah Geechee people are very closely tied and connected to the Atlantic Ocean as a means of food, recreation, spirituality, and remembrance. You know, the history tells us that the water is what brought us here. 
Yeah, and so for listeners, earlier today we were in a different location. Yes. Um, so um, many people that were following the series may be familiar with everyone that we've met with. We've asked if we could join them in a piece of nature that is special or holds significance to them. And I'd love for you to share a little bit more about where we met earlier today in this gorgeous outside natural space um, and the significance that that place holds for you and the history of Susie King Taylor. Sure. Uh, Earlier today, we met at Hay Creek Wetland Interpretive Center. And it's a beautiful place, as you can see. It's, you know, natural and wild and unkempt in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a jewel in our town that's rarely visited. Uh, The Susie King Taylor Institute, we use that as a part of our ecology talks Mm -hmm. and experiential learning. Um, As I stated, Susie King Taylor escaped slavery and Kay Creek is exemplary of the natural flora and fauna of coastal Georgia uh, with the oak trees and the Spanish moss and uh, all of the uh, natural shrubbery the the creeks and um, of, of course um, the the birds and amphibian and all of that um, and it represents um, a place that's untouched by mm. development. And uh, it's an idea of what she would have had to engage as she was growing up, also um, encountering as she was escaping. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like you know she had a hacksaw and she was hacking her way through. Or, or that, you know, um, she had to hide out. She, they, the credit needs to be given to um, those ancestors who knew the land, who knew the waterways. Mm-hmm. Here in the southeast, um, by the 1850s, uh, cotton was still grown and rice was also grown as well. And... Um, rice required a tremendous amount of water but it also took a long time to grow and so um, the the labor system that was used here on the coast is called the task system and so the task system allowed you to perform your duties um, with rice at the beginning of the day that was all you could do. You can't make the water make the rice grow. Mm-hmm. And so the remainder of the day, you were given an opportunity to sort of be on your own, hmm. but you were enslaved. And so many of the enslaved families planted their own gardens. They were allowed to go fishing at places like Kay Creek hmm. and Jones Creek. And that is how they supplemented the rations that slave owners gave them. So they were very integrally tied to the waterways, the ocean, Mm -hmm. um, the land, the trees, um, in in producing, you know, the food, the cotton, the rice, producing um, and, and creating with their hands um cabins that they lived in dugout boats and canoes but they were also allowed to travel uh, on the waterways um, in ways that you know we don't expect someone to have been able to travel Mm -hmm. um, especially under slavery and so um, they were knowledgeable of the waterways and Susie King Taylor and her family and other families who were runaways, um, they could escape because they knew um, these secret places to go to mm. in nature. Yeah. Whether it was a brush arbor or what's sometimes called in the black community, uh, historically a hush arbor, where as you were escaping yeah. or if you were worshiping or if you were 
having a meeting it was about being quiet mm. so that's where we were k creek represents all of that as we interpret Susie king taylor's story yeah that's so powerful um so what influenced you to this space was it your connection to nature that led you to Susie King Taylor did Susie King Taylor lead you to nature how did that how did that happen was it a little bit of both speak a little bit more to that sure it was a little bit of both Mm. I've always been a person who appreciated the outdoors even living in a really really busy city like Atlanta uh, you find the green spaces and the natural spaces um, to um, to relieve yourself of the tension and the anxiety of the city, mm. uh, but also as spiritual respite and um, uh, a, a way to reset. You know, when 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 one would need to. And um, I did a lot of. Um, hiking and um, nature walking and bird watching in Atlanta. But it was in 2009, I was the associate director of the Civil War Center at Kennesaw State University. And I had just learned about Susie King Taylor. I'd heard about Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and Clara Barton and those names, Frederick Douglass, but never had I heard of Susie King Taylor. And that she was from Georgia, I was shocked. So being the director, associate director, I established a conference around Um, Susie King Taylor Mm. and other African descended humans who escaped um, during the Civil War. Um, After I left Kennesaw, I decided that I would start the Susie King Taylor Women's Institute and Ecology Center to marry what I love, what I love so much. I have a bachelor's degree in history and a master's in preservation, and I love the outdoors. And I was, you know, shopping around for anybody that wanted to hear about Susie King Taylor. And that's how I got here. Yeah, and, and listening to you share that, I was I was thinking back to earlier today when we were out by Kay Creek and we had this conversation about how interconnected everything is and that's sort of what is what is a healthy environment right like that's what makes up the healthy environment is how things are playing off of each other and connecting and we've been asking everybody this along the trip of because I feel like you could sit down and ask this question to like a whole wide range of people get a whole wide range of answers sure what does a healthy environment or healthy ocean look like to you? What does that mean to you? Like when you envision that in your head, what do you see? When I envision a healthy ocean and a healthy environment, I envision one in which there is this deep respect and deep appreciation for what that resource, the ocean, has to offer us. And it's a reciprocal symbiotic relationship between humans and um, and the ocean. You know, it's like a revered God. Our co- annual conference at the Susie King Taylor Women's Institute and Ecology Center is called the Mamiwata Rising Conference. Mamiwata is a Yoruba goddess or deity of the water. And, you know, being an African-descended person, human, we wanted to connect our heritage to the ocean. And a healthy ocean to us is a, a, an experience in which there is a recognition of how the ocean has been misused by humanity, and certainly transoceanic slavery is one way in which the ocean 
has been horribly misused to transport human cargo. And um, I think just like a lot of other things in American society, we have to really be willing to face what was, what is, to name it. And, you know, working in ocean conservation with one of the largest uh, organizations in the world, you know, there are many folks who are not facing up to what ocean justice is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a healthy ocean is reflected, reflective of a healthy people. Mm -hmm. uh, healthy people are those who can um, make themselves whole by owning up to the truth, owning up to um, what it is that divides humanity and separates us from all that the planet offers us, clean air, water, soil, you know, and it's this, this separation, you know, between all of this and not really integrating um, the idea that we're all a part of this circle of life and um, how we treat the ocean is really reflective of how we treat ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's plastic pollution, whether it's uh, poisonous runoff, we know the stuff has to go somewhere downstream into the ocean. Um, whether it's, um, you know, uh, the kind of, um, I'll say, um, murder that takes place yeah. on the ocean. And I'm talking about murder of, you know, spe entire species of marine and aquatic life, whales. Some fish species don't even exist anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how we care for our coastlines the marshes, the estuaries. And so it's indicative for, uh, for me of um, our own health, you know. Mm -hmm. And so what do, what do we do about it? Yeah, and it's, it's like if we take care of it, it will take care of us. If we take care of our societies, it will take care of us. If we take care and teach our proper history, we won't repeat those mistakes in the future. And so... It, this is a really important conversation for all of us to be having is who do we want to be in the world and how do we want to move around in the world and how do we want to operate and share power? And I think so much of that comes back to the way, as you were saying, that we interact with nature. Mm -hmm. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about your connection to the ocean. Um, you know, some of the sensory experiences that you have there how healing it can be how powerful it can be like when you go to the ocean or a natural space what is that experience like for you well now that i live on the coast i cannot um, not go to the ocean it's a part of my life it's a part of my lifestyle it's a part of who i am it's a part of my spiritual practice. It's a part of um, my place and sense of belonging in the world. Mm. So when I go to the ocean, it is healing, it is restorative. It is like, um, it's like being baptized. Mm. You're gonna go to the ocean uh, for people who, who, whose belief traditions that is you go to the ocean or you go into the baptismal pool and you go under one time, two times, three times, you know, however many times that tradition has you to go under. But coming back up, I just always feel like a new person. I feel, um, I feel the oneness of my presence um, with everything that the ocean is and the ocean contains. And um, I feel a sense of responsibility um, in terms of caring for the ocean. And um, 
I also also am reminded of what it took for me to be able to go to the ocean. I'm a child of the 1960s. I was born in 1967. My mother cannot go to the ocean. My mother had to go to a segregated beach. My parents um, lived under Jim Crow. My grandparents, I've been able to trace my history into, uh, on my mother's side to 1856. And there's always been this fear of the ocean for many reasons. I think back um, when I worked for, as a consultant for the Center for Civil and Human Rights, and I had the honor of interviewing living civil rights legends, if you will. And one of those humans was Reverend C.T. Vivian, who was involved in the civil rights movement and integrating those public spaces. Those public spaces that in 1896, uh, the landmark civil rights, uh, the, the landmark Supreme Court case, Plessy v. Ferguson, was that separate um, and unequal. By the 60s, 100 years later, you mm -hmm. know, 60, 70 years later, um, black people were still not allowed to go into these public spaces. Mm -hmm. And so the civil rights movement, those leaders, those women, those men, those children, those young folks was testing the American government, those laws, um, especially after a Brown v. Board of Education testing those laws. By 1964, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, they were testing them to see if America is what America says it is. Talking about making it great again, I asked the question, was it ever great? Yes. Yep. Uh, so so um, Reverend C.T. Vivian shared with me that um, he was involved in wait-ins at the beach where mm -hmm. they were testing um, the laws, uh, the racial discrimination at, on, uh, in St. Augustine. And they were met by police officers on the beach with billy clubs. Yeah. And he says, he being a minister says, you're telling me that this is God's green earth, his blue ocean, mm -hmm. and I can't get in it because I'm black? Yeah. I didn't realize the cost of my own liberties until he said that. Mm -hmm. And so when I go to the ocean, I go to the ocean for many reasons. But when I go and I look at my grandchildren who are 10 and 2, mm. I'm so grateful. So the ocean has all of these layers of meaning. But I can't live without going there. And I'm happy to be a part of what it takes to heal the ocean, like what Healthy Ocean is doing. I'm really blessed and honored to be doing that kind of sacred work. Mm. It is sacred work. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Thank you for being so vulnerable with us and talking about parts of our history and our current situation that are really incredibly hard to talk about, but necessary to do. And so I just want to honor that and thank you for that. Um, thank you, Sarah. Yeah. And uh, it made me, when you were talking about that, it made me think a little bit about, you know, some of the bright spots that we're starting to see, right? There's the return of Bruce's Beach mm -hmm. in California, yes. you know, to 
this family's um, the rightful family, right, that was taken by the city or the county. And forgive me for not having the particulars in front of me. Mm-hmm. Right, so I, I see things like that happening, right, where stories are told of historical injustices that, you know, surround the ocean and access to the ocean and property and, you know, intergenerational wealth stolen from families because they were doing well and heaven forbid they were doing well in this space. And so I wonder if you could speak a little bit to how you see the telling of history through Susie King Taylor and the Institute and Ecology Center helping do some of that have you seen that already is that part of the mission you know um so that's a little bit more the the land reclamation is part of that yeah because there are issues of development in which there's a lot of encroachment and let's just face it it's a there's a lot of dishonesty and thievery around the property in which gullah people have had for generations Mm. um after the Civil War. And there are issues around land, but there are bright hope spots mm-hmm. um, in which individuals have aligned themselves first with this idea of self-determination, that this is my land. I think of, you know, this mm-hmm. land is my land, mm-hmm. this land is your land from California to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me, everybody. So there are communities up and down the coast who are standing up for their rights, Mm. who are speaking up for their rights, who are saying um, the property taxes are high because of X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Establishing um, land right um, centers to help community members and residents understand the property laws. Yeah. And there's Sapelo Island. Um, they are a barrier island mm-hmm. that standing up for their rights there. Mm. Um, there are a few families on St. Simon's Island. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, to know that you have um, this birthright, if you will, this ancestral heritage and ownership of land. Um, We at the Susie King Taylor Women's Institute and Ecology Center were granted an award by the 1772 Foundation. And the 1772 Foundation is an organization in which I believe um, some of the founders discovered that their ancestors had been slave owners. And so they've decided to use some of their funds as in a reparation kind of manner. So we received funds to work with Gullah Geechee communities in providing education and outreach around Gullah Geechee resilience, climate change, and flooding, because it's a real issue. We're just this close to the ocean. Um, And you know, when there's inclement weather, or hurricane phenomenon or tropical storm, um, the surges can get high. Those are going to be the the most vulnerable communities Mm -hmm. are going to be the communities that are highly impacted by sea level rise and climate change. And so we are really, really uh, grateful for that grant to provide educational outreach about what is climate change, Mm how what does climate change look like mm-hmm. in a community on a practical level? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the 
um, adaptation and mitigation measures that are available for these communities to take advantage of. Um, whether it's, you know, insurance, um, you know, most of these homes are in floodplains. You know, there's an issue with insurance. Or um, what we've done is we have, war we have um, secured copies of the flood risk management um, that, um, from University of Georgia that shows um, people where they are in these floodplains and what they can do. So it's a resource for community members. And then the other thing has been uh, talking about what is climate change, what is global warming, in a way that's non-scientific, in a way that is everyday speak for Gullah Geechee people, for black people, mm -hmm. you know. So if it's, you know, um, something like, you know, it's hotter now, the conversation could be with a, a, a person. It, the summer is so hot. You know, we've just been outside and the humidity is like <laughs> crazy. Yeah, we, were, we were sweating. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> so the conversation when I'm engaging with communities around oral history is that, you know, you understand climate change better than you think you do. You just don't have that language, but you have a language to define it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've heard seniors tell me, um, you know, it's hotter this summer than it's ever been before. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember when I was 87 year old person, I remember when I was 10, mm -hmm. it never got this hot. Now, when were you 10? In 1910? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, um, yeah, so much has happened on this planet yeah. since 1910. Yeah. And Part of it is global warming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you go into explaining what that is, and then you're saying, and climate change is this. And they're like, that's what climate change is? Yeah. Yeah. So you know what it is. Yep. You've been feeling it in your body. You've been experiencing yeah. it on this practical level, but mm -hmm. you haven't, you, you, you don't have to use that scientifically. You know what it is. Yeah. You've you been know? living it, but there's the community of, right. of scientists that it's, it's, whether it's intentional or non-intentional, it's they have their own language for it and if you don't have it then it's right. easy to feel like you're alienated or, or an outsider but right. every single person mm -hmm. i am sure whether they no matter how they feel about climate change they have their own stories they're living in the world just like we are and they right. can feel it right and the other thing is um the impact to um fish and birds and waterfowl um, that are a part of their everyday experiences. These fish are not jumping like they used to be. Yeah. You know, the right. fish that you like to eat is not there. Mm -hmm. um, so they understand something's going on from that point of view. Mm -hmm. Why aren't the fowls migrating here anymore? because of land loss, mm -hmm. degradation, habitat, habitat, yes, all of that. Yeah. So they understand that. And so I think it's our responsibility to put that in perspective, to help people become informed and to make informed choices about um, flooding, sea level mm -hmm. rise. Because we do have, you know, my first year here, my husband and I, for all intents and purposes, we were climate refugees. We were like, what, where y'all going? Mm. Um, wh why would I have to leave for that? Right. Like, it's just water. It's just a little bit of water. No, it was a little bit of water. Yeah. It was a lot of water. Dangerous. And so, yeah. right. And so people who are more vulnerable, mm -hmm. who don't have transportation, who don't have adequate housing, the city of Savannah, the city of Hinesville, the, uh, the county, uh, the emer uh, emergency management has to come in and get these people and take them to higher ground. Yeah, like the amount of times I hear people be like, oh, you could just leave. No. You could just leave. And they say it for a wide range of stuff, whether it's abortion, climate it's change. That. There are people who can't just leave. 
Right. And when we think about it from a management policy perspective, you need to be including the people who can't leave. Right. You can't just be managing for a subset of people who have the resources to just go right. somewhere else. What a privilege that is. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we, ha- we have a lot of listeners from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about Gullah Geechee Nation's history um, and their connection to the land, the water, and their influences on those things, as well as the culture of this region and beyond. Sure. The Gullah Geechee people are African-descended um, humans from West Africans who survived transoceanic slavery. You know, like a lot of people, historians like myself, I, I was one of them would say, oh, transatlantic slavery. No, it was transoceanic slavery. It was the ocean. Yeah. It wasn't like a plane or ship or it was the ocean that was used to do this. So mm-hmm. these are survivors of that long journey, mm-hmm. three months, six months journey from West Africa, being sold in West Africa to um, Dutch and English and French and Spanish explorers, you know. Mm -hmm. So in the Americas, whether South America, the Caribbean, uh, North America, um, these are the survivors. Gullah Geechee are survivors, um, descendants of survivors. And they have retained and maintain um, the language and the speech and the food ways and the art forms and spirituality of their ancestors. Mm. And the whole point of the transoceanic um, slave trade was to exploit the land for cotton, for rice. Right. So they are integrally tied to this land, but they were experts. They were chosen because they were expert, agricultural experts in Africa. So there's not this randomness that you do. They just went to every village and stole Mm -hmm. whomever. It was to the benefit of this capitalist, uh, peculiar institution known as American slavery. So the richness of their connection Mm. to the ocean, to the land, is something that existed thousands of years before. And so the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor was established in 2006 by Congress. It consists of 30 miles inward from North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Mm -hmm. and North Florida. And that is considered the cultural heritage corridor where there is the strongest um, um, presence of Gullah Geechee history and culture and influence. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that. um, I know I I keep bringing it back to Susie King Taylor. Sure. Um, I'm happy that you are. (laughs) That's my reason for being here. Hard not to. (laughs) It is hard not to, especially we're sitting in this space and I can't wait. I know this is, you know, an audio podcast, but I can't wait to share some of the photographs that we have taken in this space because it's just, it's so incredible and rich with her history and artifacts that were around in her lifetime, right? And I wonder if, um, well, first of all, we know she has a birthday coming tomorrow, up tomorrow, just super, super exciting. Um, and I wonder if um, there's anything specific you'd love for listeners to know about, um, you know, how the Institute celebrates her birthday sure. um, and things that are, are special to the work that you're doing around her life. Oh, absolutely. So annually, I stated, we have the Mami Water Rising International Conference um, with Zoom. Zoom has been wonderful oh, because Zoom. we can connect with yeah. folks. Last year, we connected with folks in London and Ghana and Jamaica. 
uh, via Zoom. And, mm -hmm. you know, they were speakers from all of these uh, various countries. But it is a delight in getting, um, connecting with folks who are just learning about Susie King Taylor, mm -hmm. which is our, our one of our missions to tell her story wherever, whenever we can. Um, this uh, exhibit is part of what we are offering now. It opened last uh, April 13th, which was the day that she escaped in 1862. Mm. And so April the 13th is our Juneteenth. It was when she freed herself with her feet. Yeah. And uh, we're always excited around this time to uh, share history about Susie King Taylor. But if I can, I, I want to share something with you. Please. Yeah. For listeners, Hermina is up. She's on the move. She's going to she's gonna, <laughs> getting something to show us. Oh, wow. Those are slave shackles, the sound of slave shackles. What Susie King Taylor means to me is freedom, mm. joy, life. And I think that every human being is entitled to that. Every human. Yep. Everything that's alive, even everything that's alive in the ocean, is entitled to freedom and joy and happiness. Mm -hmm. That was so beautiful. Thank you, Hermina. This is honestly, it's just been such a beautiful day spending time with you and connecting with you in person I know that we've spent so much time on zoom we were just talking about how zoom is great in some ways right for connecting with people that maybe you wouldn't be able to in your own community yeah but there's something about spending time with a person mm -hmm. in a place that carries so much power and you have been so gracious and kind to us yeah. welcoming us into your community and sharing your experiences and i'm i'm just so moved i feel like i'm out of uh, at a loss for words but the gratitude that i feel toward you is is immense and I, we're just so fortunate that mm -hmm. in this short period of time, right, that we all yeah. are walking on earth, that our paths crossed. I feel like that's intentional because even mm -hmm. though we've, you know, we've been working remotely for what, maybe a year, year and a half, two years? Two and a half, two yeah. and a half years. Well, with, with Hermina. Oh, with Hermina, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, year. I feel... I just feel like there's there's this commonality and connection in the way that we approach the work that we do where we put community and people first, right? Mm -hmm. That I'm just so, so looking forward to what we're going to continue to do together and finding ways that we, through the Healthy mm -hmm. Ocean Coalition and just as Jenna and Sarah's individuals, can continue to support the work that you are doing and I'm I'm wondering if you you would share some more thoughts on that your perspective on the power of community and what happens when we all come together in a supportive sense versus this individualistic sort of western colonizer view I know, for me that let's have church up in here yeah mm -hmm. that, you know yes. that, <laughs> that yeah. we've we're taught that right like yep. living in america at least in my lived experience mm -hmm. you you're you're led to believe that it's like you're on your own like 
you know, kill or be killed. You got to make your money and no one else really matters. And that's not how the world works. And it's not how it should work. When you see examples of when people are working together Mm -hmm. and there is space for everybody and they're making space for everybody and saying, hey, maybe Mm -hmm. maybe this work isn't about me and my ego. It's about the mission and the goal and achieving something as this like common collective community. What are your thoughts on the power that community has? First of all, I want to say I am grateful to somehow have been introduced to Healthy Ocean <laughs> Coalition. I still don't know who sent me the email. <laughs> the, universe. Uh, the universe. The universe sent it. So, Thank you. Um, we can't do this work alone. Mm. I found your work very compelling. I think you already know that, um, which is why I was like, this is new. I'm going to hang around. I'm going to come back a second time and see if this was like legit. Mm. This is like a real collective, mm. a real coalition who wants to get this work done together. Yeah. Because we can't do it alone. Yeah. It takes a community. It takes a village. It takes a village to save the planet. Yeah. And you all are doing it. And so I'm glad to be friends with you all. I consider you friends. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And um, to be joining with you in Mm -hmm. all of this. um, Because... um, Love has to be what, what propels us. Mm-hmm. You know, you love has has to be at the basis of everything that we're doing. We love the ocean. We do. We love humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We love where we live. We love our community. Mm-hmm. And so there's this for me. In essence, there's this love-based solution in which community is about. Yes. Especially when it's about healing Mm -hmm. and healing each other and healing the planet. We gotta do this together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you cannot go far as an individual. There's something about our souls Mm -hmm. that won't let us leave a person behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you want to go, there's an African proverb. If you want to go fast, go alone. Mm -hmm. But if you want to go far, Mm. we got to do it together. Yep. Yeah, it's just so true. We got to do it together. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that white folks got to do it on their own Mm -hmm. and Black folks got to do it on their own and native, mm-hmm. indigenous, first nation people yeah. have to do it on their own and Hispanics and Asians. Mm-hmm. Th- this is just a covering. This is a social construct that somebody made up. We're humans. Yes, they did. We're humans. Yeah. And if our species is going to survive. Yep. Ours. Yeah. Because in all honesty, if we left the ocean alone, the ocean could heal itself. Yeah, it doesn't need us. It does not need us. <laughs> it's us and all of this carbon emission, and it's absorbing <laughs> 30% of it, and ocean acidification, and all of that. Yep. If we left everything alone, the ocean could heal itself. Yeah. But we need the ocean, and we need each other. We do. And yeah. it's from this kind of engagement, yeah. this kind of real, authentic, true dialogue mm-hmm. that we begin to understand one another. Mm-hmm. We begin to know one another's story because let's face it, our country is over 200 years old. Yeah, Black folks don't know white folks, white folks don't know black folks, they don't know nobody. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it's these kinds of experiences yep. in which we are pulled into these intimate communal community spaces that we get to talk yeah we get to learn about one another 
Jenna and I were reflecting during this road trip that, you know, the pandemic really heightened that sense of aloneness, right? Like physical aloneness and sometimes spiritual aloneness and feeling like you are on your own. And being able to get back on the road and do this trip and meet everyone in person for the first time mostly has allowed us to remember what the power of community really does look like. And that if we remember that it's it's not a finite pie and everyone's looking for their largest slice, that we all have a seat at the table. We can make another table and pull that one in together and that the bigger our community becomes where we are having these conversations and moving together in different ways that we're going to get, we're going to be able to do that. We're going to be able to move farther and protect ourselves and protect the ocean and preserve something better, right? Something better for our kids and our grandkids and in this space. So I, there's yeah. enough for everybody. There's enough for everyone. There's enough for Yes. Everyone. Yeah. That's always where we get tripped up, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, I have to get mine because there's not enough for everyone. No. Mm-hmm. No. That's not true. Right. And fear is always what drives us apart. Right. It's like I felt felt so connected to your, the, the love. It's mm-hmm. moving with love mm-hmm. and not fear. Right. Yeah. So. That wasn't a question at all. That was just me. <laughs> it's a conversation. It is, yes, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So we're wondering, speaking of community and this, this continual road that we're on to build bigger and stronger communities, if someone's listening to this and wants to get involved in the work that you do, how can they follow along or get in touch? Well, you can always go to the website. It's Susie King Taylor Institute dot org and follow what we got going on in our website and um, we're on Facebook and Instagram so you can follow what we're doing there awesome and so we always wrap up every show by asking each guest the same series of questions Um, so starting with what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we're facing It will have to be climate change. Mm. Climate change uh, in the black community. um, When we're looking at um, the public health factors, um, there's a, you know, we've all heard of uh, Cancer Alley Mm -hmm. in Louisiana. There are a number of chemical plants here, wood pulping plants here. you know, on the coast and throughout the state. And um, there are a number, uh, quite a, a number of folks that suffer from respiratory illnesses related to uh, air pollution, which is exacerbated by mm. intense heat over long days. And so that's a real, real serious issue mm-hmm. in these communities, in our communities. But, you know, there is this cascading effect of climate change. Mm-hmm. We just talked about them too, impacting the marsh and people's source of food. I was just talking to the mayor of Brunswick, Georgia, yesterday. And he, we brought up um, how some of the... Uh, pollutants from the chemical plants there in that town um, have penetrated the soil Mm. and is also in the water. Mm. And we're talking about communities who are fishing in these contaminated waterways. So it, um, climate change um, is a serious issue yeah it's a serious issue that is um, more imminent than than we think that it is I just talked about the the level of um, inundation from flooding 
Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about, um, and this is one of my biggest concerns, is that living so close to the ocean, within 30 miles of the ocean, it's the surges, mm-hmm. that what is it going to take for our government to invest in infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of mitigation and adaptation. These people can't afford to lift their homes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what is our government going to do about hardening our shorelines and mm-hmm. protecting these folks? Because some people are going to die. Mm-hmm. God forbid, people are going to die yeah. from, you know, from this. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. that, to me, is a serious, serious environmental issue. But it's also a part of this larger system of structural discrimination and racism that exists in our society. Yep. And so how do we address those? Because why are you on the left side of the bank, you know, living the way you live and those on the right side of the bank who are in a gated community, it's high up on a bluff and, you know, why do those kinds of differences exist in our society? Mm -hmm. Those are some issues that many environmental conservation organizations must address because if we can't get that right, we're not going to get ocean policy right. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get saving the North Atlantic right whales right. We're not going to get any of that right. Yeah. Yeah. Changing the policies. Changing the policies. That to make them just and equitable. Absolutely. Hashtag ocean justice, right? Hashtag ocean <laughs> justice. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real thing. It is. Yeah. I wish I wish more I mean maybe that's our call to action right is really learning and understanding what frontline communities are asking for ocean policy to look like right mm-hmm. you know um Ayana, Ayana Elizabeth Johnson you know she says that you know ocean justice is you know once you do the adaptation and mitigation mm-hmm. ask yourself who's going to benefit from it mm. Therein lies the work that you have to do. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah, that's so true. That's ocean justice. Yeah. Um, so um, maybe that kind of segues into the second of these three questions is what are you energized about moving forward? I'm energized and hopeful about the solutions. Mm that there are solutions and slowly but surely I think that I have to keep going back to this I think that the reckoning that has come about in our nation as a result of murder homicide, Mm -hmm. ecocide Mm -hmm. uh, has awakened America awakened young people yeah to what's really going on in America. Mm-hmm. And these young people have me pumped. Yeah. I'm following, I'm looking at what they're doing mm-hmm. because they are the answer. Mm-hmm. There was a song long time ago, I believe the children are future. That was a nice song. <laughs> Whitney Houston sang that yeah. song. They're not the children of our future. Yeah. They are the children of our now. Yeah. And young people whom you all work with mm-hmm. are doing some stuff. So I'm very hopeful about the solutions that, you know, and it's not a cookie cutter solution for, Mm-mm. they're taking into consideration what is needed for this community, for that community. And um, they're working it. Yeah. And for, um, those who work in policy, like Healthy Ocean Coalition, Ocean, and others, um, I'm 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 hopeful, filled with so much hope um, that we're going to turn this climate, global warming, around. 
so that we all can enjoy this planet because it's such a beautiful world. How lucky so are we, right? Yeah. We were just born. Yes. You start beautiful. Th- start thinking about the universe, right? It's like, holy Those moly. photos that came out. You're like, what? Like, what is that? Right. There's this one. If people follow me on Twitter, they probably probably have seen me like spiraling about this. But there's there's <laughs> one that looks like it's like an eyeball looking through a peephole. Uh-huh. Totally freaked me out. Right. I'm like, what is that? Right. <laughs> what right. is that? It's so strange. It's so wonderful. And what an experience it is right. for us to be these like souls embodied on planet Earth that has all of the things we need. To survive if we just let it be healthy. Right. right. And if we just live with gratitude. Yeah. Thanking, you know, I'm teaching my granddaughters to say thank you to the bees mm-hmm. because they come out every morning and they alight on the flower and they're doing their holy sacred work going from plant to plant, pollinating. Say thank you to the bees. Yeah. You know, you can, so I, <laughs> I kept bees for a little while and you can actually you can pet them i don't want to advocate for that if you don't know if you're allergic to bees or not mm-hmm. maybe don't do this but um you know honeybees or bumblebees they're not really aggressive mm-hmm. of course like probably a lot of people know this but they they won't sting you because if they do they'll die right and mm-hmm. so you if if you get close enough to some of them you can actually pet them and right. it, it's kind of a fun experience because everything in your body is sort of like don't don't do that like i don't i don't want to get stung but they're they're really fascinating gentle creatures another unit of life that we are connected to on this earth right Right. we're not separate from the bees we rely on them they rely on us to not mess it up you know it's Talk about a fascinating social structure too. I don't. We could do a whole podcast right. on bees, but <laughs> these are so fascinating, and that's just one example right. of one other form of living thing on this planet that is right. so complex, and we have countless. Right. It's just mm-hmm. such a right. gift to be here. Right. right. And like I said, you know, thank the bees. Yeah. Thank them for doing their work. Mm-hmm. You know, thank the turtles for doing their work. Thank the whales for the whale poop. Mm-hmm. Thank, yeah. you know. It's important. <laughs> whale poop, yeah. whale poop is important, everybody. I mean, you know, be <laughs> grateful. Learn to be grateful because actually the, that's essentially how we are alive. Yeah. 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 Um, so now we're wondering, you can sort of approach us however, however you're comfortable what is the best advice you've ever been given and or what advice do you have for the listeners? The best advice that I've been given is that at the end of the day, love will save the day. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Love will save the day. It will. I fully believe that. And I mean, we love you so much. We're so grateful for this day this time together mm. i know earlier i probably went on for like two minutes about how much we love you and how grateful we are but for this to be the day that rounds out our trip yeah. it's could not be more perfect and my heart and soul feel f- so full and fulfilled and um that's so much large in part due to you and your presence and your leadership and just how kind you've been to getting to know us and opening mm-hmm. your door to us and um it's just a really beautiful thing so i i really want to say from the bottom of our hearts thank you ditto well it's been my pleasure to sit and breathe with you all and be in nature with you all yeah. and to um, just be in community with one another we're all, we're all humans, and I love you all. And we love you, listeners. We're going to extend that out yeah, through the audio right? space. We're, we're sending the love out your way. Thank you so much for following along with us on this, this Voices of a Healthy Ocean road trip. It will certainly not be our last, but for a first, 
Wow. I mean, we're going to have a hard time topping this, I think, quite frankly. So, yeah. Yeah. But thank you for listening. Um, Sarah and I will actually be back next Sunday with a conclusion wrap-up show where we'll share some of our thoughts and experiences from the road, some behind-the-scenes stories, some things we learned and were really moved by, or maybe some of the sort of funnier, more challenging moments of, of the drive, because anyone who's taken a road trip knows it never goes exactly as planned. Um, but that's part of the whole the whole thing. So thank you all for listening, and we will check back in with you next Sunday. Mm-hmm.